What would it be like to be thrust in a matter of days from the relative anonymity of being an executive in a large organisation to being on the front line of solving the world's number one health, social and economic crisis? Well, on this show, we find out as we talk to Ben Osborne, MD of Pfizer UK, who led the rollout of the world's first corona vaccine programme across the UK. What were the leadership challenges of accelerating a process that takes typically between 5 and 15 years to 9 months? Let's find out. Hello friends and welcome to the Evolving Leader Podcast. Scott Allender here along with my friend and a man whose primary source of exercise these days is running late, Mr. John Gomes. <laughs> oh dear. Um, <laughs> how are you feeling, Scott? I'm I'm excited. I'm energized in anticipation of getting to do this interview with you today. How are you feeling? I'm feeling the same way and also a uh, growing sense of hope is, uh, is mm. uh, in the air as well. So that's wonderful. So today we're joined by Ben Osborne, Managing Director of uh, Pfizer UK. Ben, welcome to The Evolving Leader. Thank you, John. Thank you, Scott. No, it's a pleasure to, uh, to be with you both this afternoon. Well, the pleasure is ours. Thank you for being here. We have so many questions we want to get to, but um, let's start with you, if we may. Can you give us an overview of your career and how you came to be in your current role? Yeah, sure. So, uh, yeah, as John said, I'm, uh, I've got the pleasure of, uh, of leading Pfizer here in the, uh, the UK. Two and a half thousand colleagues, um, essentially all trying to bring our purpose to, uh, to life every day. Um, I've actually been with Pfizer 22 years now. Uh, I joined completely by chance, and it was a, a genuine chance that I, uh, I got into Pfizer and, and not another company. Uh, but it's certainly not chance that I'm here 22 years uh, later. It's been an incredible journey through a variety of different roles uh, internationally and also based uh, here in the, in the UK uh, across the full range of our, our business. But no better role than the one I'm in right now, not least given what's happening around the world with, uh, with health and healthcare. So we have got a lot of things that we want to talk to you about, um, but let, let's take a little bit of the mystery out uh, for our listeners about what the vaccine is and how it works. Can you give, give us a quick layman's introduction to it? Yeah, so right right now, uh, I mean, you've got a, you've got a number of different uh, vaccine uh, technologies uh, that are out there. Some of them are more traditional that would be very familiar with uh, in terms of how, for instance, say a flu vaccine would would work, uh, and some are much more novel in terms of uh, some of the uh, the technology uh, that has actually recently uh, only just been uh, been developed. Our own our own platform uh, is one of the uh, the more innovative, more uh, more novel uh, technologies, mRNA, which essentially teaches your uh, your body uh, to build its own uh, immune response to the uh, to the virus uh, should it encounter it in the in, in the future. Although I think the most important thing about all of this uh, right now is we're going to need three, four, maybe five vaccines uh, in the future to really get on top of this uh, pandemic uh, across the globe. So it's not about a competition between vaccines. It's a competition simply about against the, uh, the virus itself, really. Is the science behind the, the varying uh, vaccines the same? Is it similar or is it different? Are there different approaches being used to tackle the same issue? Yeah, so the so the the end result, uh, we're all aiming for for the same uh, um, essentially response, which is essentially to build uh, an immune response uh, within an individual uh, to the coronavirus uh, itself. 
how you get to that is really quite different, and that's where the uh, the different technologies have have really come to uh, have come to play. Uh, but really interestingly, despite the sort of broad range of technologies, actually we've all been able to sort of completely turn the uh, historic timelines uh, on on its head, which is I think the really exciting thing about all of this. Mm. So if we go back to this time last year and just remind ourselves, what's the fastest that the system was able to turn a successful vaccine from conception through to, to being publicly available? Yeah, I mean, in, in, the, in the past, uh, prior to, uh, to what we've seen right now, you would be looking normally at a, at a five to 10 year development cycle to go from the very basic science. So the, the primitive idea through to uh, actually being able to put a, a vaccination program uh, into a uh, into a country, um, and here we are, less than less than eleven months. Uh, this has been done. So, what were some of the factors that that helped you get there so quickly? If we if we start off sort of big picture uh, here, we we were really clear um, as an organisation that in order to beat this virus and to beat the the pandemic. We were going to have to move faster than the uh, than the virus uh, I- itself, and so uh, this was a time for setting probably the boldest, most audacious goals that have ever been set in in, in the life science sector, and certainly in the history, I think, of, of pharmaceutical companies. I think that that sort of bold vision is probably the number one driver of what we've what we've seen here because every company every academic collaboration essentially recognized that the normal timelines of five years plus i mean they were just not going to work in this situation uh from our own uh, pfizer biontech uh, perspective we essentially said what could we do to essentially uh, to develop a vaccine by october 2020 now most people would have laughed at that and said, you're absolutely crazy. There is no way in this world that that is possible. But when you set yourself a goal like that, where it forces every single part of the system to challenge itself and not just, you know, OK, well, if we tweak this and we adjust that, but to radically transform and to look at it through a completely different approach, you start getting some really different answers. The second piece I would say is uh, appetite for risk. You know, we're very fortunate as a big global uh, pharmaceutical company that we had the resource uh, along with BioNTech to bring to bear on the, on this. And our CEO, as he said uh, widely, actually in recent months, was prepared to take a big financial risk on uh, on this one. We put in before we'd even got uh, an approved vaccine over two billion dollars of capital at risk. And our CEO was prepared that if this didn't work, then okay, we tried, uh, we would learn from from that, but it was a risk worth taking. So let's bring this to life because you're talking about just incredible um, acceleration of the whole system. And it's not just what Pfizer was doing, it's also the regulators and the health committees and all the various aspects of the system so can you just break it down for us a little bit in terms of what were the the assumptions that had to be busted in order to make this work? And what were people talking about around the the board table 
when the CEO put that on the table that we're going to take this big risk? What, what were people's reactions within the organization to this? I mean, if I start off with sort of the the, the sort of the feel within our organization uh, was one of, wow, yeah, this is our time. This is our time to really step up and show what we can what we can do here to bring our our purpose to life. Our our purpose is um, breakthroughs that change patients lives there. I don't think will ever be uh, a breakthrough in the history of uh, of the life science sector or in the future that will change society as much as uh, a COVID-19 vaccine. Mm. Um, And so uh, I guess the whole, you saw everybody across the organization, no matter what your role, whether you were very much at the center of this, uh, of this program or more on the periphery, everyone committed to playing their, uh, their part. If you break it down into what I think was some of the, the big uh, decisions and, and big factors. Um, we moved as fast as science would allow us to throughout the whole process, uh, both in terms of some of the, the early science in trying to identify uh, a candidate vaccine, but then all the way through to working with the, uh, with the regulators and then through the, uh, through the manufacturing uh, steps. And science in this case could move really, really rapidly, because unfortunately, with a global pandemic and the nature of this, the disease was incredibly prevalent uh, across the across the globe. So a couple of, I guess, uh, you know, really specific examples uh, that just showed how fast we, we moved. Um, ordinarily, when you get what's called ethics approval to start a, a clinical trial um, and to start actually testing in, uh, in patients, it can take a matter of weeks, sometimes even months, uh, to you know get the first patient into a uh, into a clinic. We put all of the steps in place so that when that first uh, approval came through, the first patient was then entered into the clinical trial in two hours. I wow. mean, that is just throwing everything we've done up in the you know in the past up in the air and saying no. There's a different way of doing this. Let's line everything up assuming we're going to get the approval and be ready to go. Of course, we, we got that, that approval. The big, the big one uh, was really uh, around uh, scaling up our manufacturing at risk. Again, traditionally, the way this would work in the, uh, in the biopharma sector is you would wait until you've got certainty of data at set decision points before you invest uh, capital. Certainly when you're investing capital, to the tune of uh, you know hundreds uh, of, uh, of millions of, uh, of dollars and into the billions. In this case, we knew that if we waited until we'd got uh, the sort of the main pivotal readout, we would be too late because it would then take another uh, potentially you know three four months to scale up from from there. So we began that scale up very very early on when we we knew we had some positive data coming, but we weren't sure whether we actually. Go- to have a, a viable vaccine uh, overall and it was that scale up and that risk uh, that really made sure that when we got the first approval which as you know was here in the UK actually we already had several millions of doses of the vaccine ready to be uh, deployed uh, into the UK within a matter of, uh, of days and, and then the, the final piece you, you mentioned the, the regulator John this, this is a really important point because it it wasn't just Pfizer and BioNTech working differently uh, every uh, part of the system uh, really challenged themselves. And the regulator took an approach of what was called a rolling review. Um, the easiest way to think of this is 
you'd like a book. So the traditional way is uh, a company would write all of the individual chapters uh, and they would wait until they'd finished the final chapter. They bound the book uh, and then submitted it um, before uh, going to the, uh, to, the, to the regulator. Actually, what the regulator in the UK did, so the MHRA said, we will take your data in real time. So as soon as you start generating data about the safety, the efficacy, the manufacturing consistency, and some of the other really important uh, details that they need, we'll start looking at that data then and giving you real-time feedback. That saved months, uh, if not potentially, you know, over a year off the, uh, off the traditional, traditional process. You know, mm. They're just three examples. I could, you know, the list would go on. There was every part of the system was challenged to go faster, but without ever, ever compromising safety. So what's interesting in this is that you're, you're talking about a system that is quite a linear system moving yeah. to a non-linear system where everybody's willing to essentially scale up the investment, do the testing, analyze the data all at the same time. How do you do that? Because, I mean, that, that, that uh, you know, is, is kind of how um, scale-ups and startups have managed to outperform the market by doing that kind of non-linear problem solving. How do you manage to do that post-COVID? Do you think, you know, there's going to be a dividend where you maintain that, that non-linear speed? Um, you know, it is for the regulator, for example, but we're going to be prepared to, to carry on doing that. Yeah, I think this is this is the million dollar question that everyone's asking uh, right now is how can we take what we've shown science can do over the last 12 months and then project that to to cancer, to Alzheimer's, to all of these you know incredibly uh, devastating conditions? I think for me, you know, you can't necessarily take uh, the covid vaccine model and then replicate it broadly uh, across uh, every other disease area, because we need to be really honest that. This has taken up a huge amount of resource and it's not the financial resource, actually. It, it's the it's the human capital and the time. You know, people have worked endless hours. They've cancelled holidays. They've worked through weekends. They've worked in a way that I don't think is necessarily sustainable uh, from that point of view. But what I think you can take forward is to challenge some of the, you know, the perceived ways uh, or some of the perceived wisdom of doing things in the, in the past and where that appetite for, for risk is um, and how comfortable you are with that. I think we've traditionally been pretty conservative uh, as a sector. I think that will, that will definitely change uh, because we've seen actually when you do take a, a, a risk and again, always on the financial side, never on the, the safety uh, side of, of this, actually the rewards are huge. Um, in particular for, uh, for the health of, uh, of nations around the, around the world. I think the other piece, though, that has really, really shone through is the importance of collaboration and collaboration in real time. The, the understanding and the sequencing of the coronavirus uh, uh, itself was shared instantly around the world back in early January. And that led to hundreds of, of scientists around the globe working in their own labs and then sharing that data with each other to help inform, to help give insight and to really accelerate the, uh, the, the pace of, uh, of understanding. Again, I think that's something we've really got to hold on to because 
if you look at the challenges of healthcare of the future, they're not solvable by any one nation or any one company or any one academic institution. It's going to require insight from all of us to come together on the, on this. So I'm curious, what leadership challenges internally did you specifically have to face? Yeah, I mean, I think I think that the biggest leadership challenge, um, and it still continues to this day in many respects, is that this is totally unprecedented. And I know we've used the word unprecedented a lot during the the pandemic, but but genuinely, no no one had ever taken on such an endeavor in such a timeline uh, ever, ever before. And there was nothing even remotely like it that you could refer to or easily, easily learn from. So you are having to, and still to this day, you are having to really, you know, inspire and motivate and bring energy to the organization with huge uncertainty, big ambiguity, big uncertainty, um, and, and, you know, help people to understand that, look, yes, we may fail. Yes, there will be, be challenges. That is absolutely fine. Do not worry about this. You know, our organization, like many others, you know, very results orientated and sure we needed the result from this we and we were absolutely committed to that but equally we were prepared that we would do things and we would try things that may fail but that would that is absolutely uh you know okay in, in fact you know it's to be celebrated when it does happen because we'll learn from it and and, uh, and move forward uh, again mm. it might seem like an odd question uh, seeing as you came first to market with this I know it's not a competition, but but you know we're all delighted that you did. Um, what did you fail in anything along the way? What where where did you um, you know make mistakes? Oh grief! I mean, almost uh, every day there are things that you look back on and think, oh, if only we'd done this slightly differently. You know, I think we've been very fortunate. We haven't had anything that you would say was catastrophic or uh, mission critical failure. Um, but, you know, we, we've, we've had to adjust, you know, a, a really good example and one, that, one that's quite live uh, is, you know, the volume of vaccine that we're able to, to produce. We, we set ourselves uh, an aspiration um, based on a series of, uh, of assumptions of when we would get the, uh, the data, when we'd be able to manufacture. And there were some challenges, there were some bumps in the road uh, with, with that. And so we weren't able in 2020 to manufacture quite as much uh, as we'd uh, initially uh, aspired to. In fact, we publicly stated that we would reduce the 100 million down to 50 million in 2020. But actually what we then did is revisit those, uh, those assumptions and look, okay, what do we need to then do in 2021? And we've now got ourselves into a position after just a few months of now increasing our uh, global supply for 2021 from 1.3 billion to 2 billion. So that came out of this constant desire and constant appetite to learn, to challenge and say, OK, well, 1.3 billion was great. How can we go further? How can we go faster? How can we improve, improve the, the yield of, of this vaccine? So it's this relentless pursuit on, you know, knowing, you know, can we go fast or challenging? Can we go faster? Can we make, uh, make more of, of this? So there's still some fear out there about, getting the vaccine. I think for some it's because they're generally, you know, committed anti-vaxxers and for others it's because it came so quickly and because it's new. And so there are people that feel a little bit shaky, um, not aware of possible long-term implications. What would you say 
to these folks who are looking for some comforting assurances? Yeah, Scott, this is a really, really important question. The first thing, and I get asked this a lot, uh, and I'm glad I do get asked it a lot because you know it's important that we all understand after the provision of clean water, the most important, the most effective public health intervention that exists is the provision of vaccination. Uh, it is the reason why we've uh, eradicated polio in many parts of the uh, the world and many other devastating uh, conditions. So, you know, first and foremost, vaccination works and, and is and is safe. But I understand, you know, that people do have questions uh, about how have you been able to move so fast? How, if the normal timeline is five years plus, how have you been able to do it in less than 12, 12 months? There, there are a number of there are a number of points here. The first is at every step of the process, uh, both internally within Pfizer and BioNTech, with the regulators, with the NHS and others, safety always, always comes first and is never, ever compromised. So we've gone as fast as science will allow, but never to the extent that that would mean cutting a corner on uh, on, on safety. And you know, that should give everyone huge reassurance. But furthermore, it's not just me or Pfizer or others saying uh, that. The assessment of all of our data uh, is done by an independent regulator uh, here in the UK and then, uh, and then around, the, uh, around the world. And it is up to those regulators who are made up of experts uh, to use their normal high standards uh, of safety, efficacy, manufacturing consistency to decide whether a vaccine is safe or or not. And then the final piece is, it doesn't stop at the the authorization. We as an organization and the regulator, the healthcare system, continue to track the follow-up of uh, of patients uh, over the the long term. Uh, In fact, just last week, the UK regulator issued the first data set of 10 million patients that had had the first dose of a vaccine. And, and their conclusion was these vaccines are, are extremely safe uh, and, uh, and there, are, there are no issues that have been identified in the first 10 million people that have, uh, that have been treated with them. So great. How, how do you think Pfizer is going to uh, emerge from this experience? Do you th- how do you think it might change? Yeah, I think it's fascinating. I mean, we've... We've been a household name sort of in the past with some of our uh, our science. Um, but I think, you know, every, everybody knows of, of Pfizer right now. I mean, it, it's just it's just incredible. Um, I hope that what comes with that from an external perspective it is a real understanding of why our company exists and a deeper understanding of, of what we're trying to do to change human health uh, around the world and a real belief in, in that, in the same way that I and others that work for the organization have that understanding and, uh, and belief. So I think there's an external piece uh, in terms of uh, knowing who Pfizer are and our reputation and the value that hopefully uh, we, we bring. I think for us as an organization, it has really shown that when you set big, bold, audacious goals, actually sometimes they, they, they can pay off. Uh, and you can achieve them. Now, we may set more in the future and not achieve them. That, w- that will be absolutely fine. But I think it's given a renewed energy to, to really, uh, as Albert put it, shoot for the moon. 
And if you don't get there, well, fine. You know, 80% may be, you know, far better than you would have achieved uh, ordinarily with a more conservative or traditional uh, mindset. So I think what we will see is an even greater focus on science, an even greater focus on how we bring science together with tech and data, uh, because it's that unique sort of collaboration that's come together that really has enabled uh, us to not just move quickly, but move with real insight. And then I think it, it will bring just energy to, to our organization. You know, everyone you speak to uh, that works for Pfizer, whether they've played a role in the vaccine or not, just feels so proud of, uh, of what has happened uh, around the globe. What has all this meant for you personally? How has it changed you? Oh, wow. I mean, it, it's a year that I find difficult, honestly, Scott, to really put into words, in, mm. in part because it has been so full on. I refuse to use the word busy um, because I just think that that sends out all the wrong message. It, but it is full on in, in every respect. Uh, and so I honestly haven't had the time to really, really pause and reflect in the way that I want to. I'm hoping some holiday this year will allow me to, to do so. It's been the best way I can describe it, though, is a roller coaster. It's given me some of the highest highs I've ever had in my life, uh, you know, personally and professionally. And some of the biggest lows, some of the biggest moments of, of real challenge, thankfully more highs than, than lows. But you realize the significance of the work that you're doing when you turn on the 10 o'clock news and you hear the devastating figures of hospitalization, of deaths here in the UK and around the world. Mm. And the role that you and your company really play in bringing that to an end. And, you know, I've always, you know, really believed in what we do and the value that it brings, but never more so than, uh, mm. than what we do uh, right now. So yeah, it's been an incredible uh, 12 months. I, I've learned a huge amount uh, about me personally, about our organization uh, and you know, the wider world in terms of uh, our uh, understanding of science uh, or not. And um, I, I need to properly pause and reflect at some stage, but the time is not now for do, to do that. We've still got a lot to, to get through in the months ahead. Sure. Well, I hope you get it in the summer. Thank you. If you're enjoying The Evolving Leader, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. And don't forget to follow along on Instagram and LinkedIn. You can find us at Evolving Leader. Thank you for listening. Now, let's get back to the show. So just pivoting a little bit, I mean, we have talked, Ben, in the past um, about how important purpose is to you personally, but also to your leadership DNA. Um, can you talk us a little bit about your deepening understanding of the, the meaning of purpose and its value in your life uh, and your work? I've definitely been on a, uh, a, a journey with, uh, with this one over the last 20 years or so. Honestly, early on in my career, I don't think I really quite understood or appreciated the importance of purpose, either at work or, or at home. It was really when my eldest son, George, 12, 13 years ago, unfortunately, was diagnosed with a really rare but very severe epilepsy condition. And to put that into context, he was fitting 30, 40 times a day. He was in and out of hospital. And I had a number of moments very late at night, you know, two, three in the morning where I'm sat in the hospital bed, really reflecting on what am I, 
what am I doing? What am I here for? I mean, it, you know, not just at work, but personally, what is going to happen to the future? And it, it made me think and challenge, I guess, some of my beliefs that I'd had previously, some of my aspirations, and gave me a real clarity on what am I here to do and what is really important to me. And the more I thought about that, the more I came to, uh, and I think you've heard me, me say it, my sort of my own personal purpose is transform, don't tinker. Um, I think I got, I got to really understand. I don't like messing around in the edges. I don't like tinkering around and saying, okay, well, if we do this, that might have a slight impact here. What I really like to do is go all in and see what we can do with, with, with real change um, and to be pretty bold uh, and, and visionary with that. But I want to do that, you know, not um, at, at any cost. I want to do it for real sort of meaning and, and, and value because I'd seen firsthand the importance of our sector, of the NHS and others to my son's own, own condition. And so it just gave me a real, you know, probably over a year or so, uh, a sort of a point of clarity that what I wanted to do was basically commit my working career to uh, you know, trying to transform health and healthcare uh, in the UK and, and further afield in line with the jobs that, that I had. Um, you know, and I'm privileged to work for an organisation who actually absolutely you know, aligns to, to that. But I'd say it, it's much deeper than that. It, go, it goes beyond just my, my working life, you know, whatever I commit to and go, it's all in, you know, I, I'm big into running. So, but I don't run, you know, once or twice a week just to kind of keep fit. I, I run because I want to really, really test myself and see how far can I push it? You know, what are my own personal limits? And when, you know, I kind of felt comfortable with where I got to with a marathon and that wasn't challenging me. Okay. Well, what can a 50 mile race do? You know, how hard can I push that? And that taught me a huge amount because I was, totally inexperienced with that I had to really start again to learn uh, about how you race 50 miles rather than a marathon so yeah it, it's I think it's something that will stay with me now for uh, for the rest of my life both personally and, and professionally I think Scott wants to know about that don't you Scott you want to know about how to push yourself to 50 I'm trying miles to push up, myself yeah. from a half a mile to a full mile but I'm, I'm working on it <laughs> I love the uh, the visual of the sort of tinkering around the edges, the way you talked about that. Um, and I think oftentimes, you know, we can confuse the notion of iterative tinkering with something transformational. So I'd love to pull that out a little bit more from you. What's the, what's the real difference between iterative changes and transformative work? Is it, and is it primarily rooted in knowing and living your purpose? I think first and foremost, you can only really, really transform and commit to transformation because let's face it, it takes huge energy, it takes time, it takes commitment and sometimes personal sacrifice. So I think you can only commit to it if it really is rooted in your own personal purpose. Hmm. For me, it comes down to a number of questions. So yeah, has it been done before? not within your organization or within people you know has it been done across the globe has anyone else tried this or, or succeeded with this honestly if they have that's not transformational it you know it may be new it may be a change for you you or your company your team but it's not transforming it if, if someone else has, has done it or has got pretty close to uh, to that so that that's that's one question the other, the other piece I always says you know, do we think this is possible 
if you go into it with the view that actually there's a pretty high likelihood of success here, I think you should be really challenging yourself as to how transformational that thinking is. So we now have uh, what we call breakthrough goals at, uh, at Pfizer, and you know they are baked into your your objectives, but you go into them and you set them thinking you won't achieve them. If you achieve them, great, but equally, the vast majority of us uh, with our one or two breakthrough goals will fail. But that's absolutely fine because you're going to learn a huge amount along the way. And as I said earlier on, you know, if you fail, but having achieved 70, 80 percent, the chances are that's going to be a lot better uh, in terms of outcomes than uh, if you've been a little more conservative at the uh, at the start. Hmm. So I know you haven't had much chance to to reflect because you've been in, you know, in the fray. Um, what do you think you are learning about yourself, though? I would say um, I think you 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 set personal limits that actually are way more conservative than actually, are, you know, it, it is what's possible, um, you know, mentally and, and, and physically, um, you know, if I just look at what we've been able to achieve, particularly just over the, the last the last few months, I don't think I would have ever have, have believed that we, we could do that and the contribution that we, we could make to vaccinating, where are we at, 12 million uh, people today. But we but we have. And so, you know, I, I've learned that in line with that, that transform, don't tinker, don't don't be afraid of that. And don't be worried or concerned that others are looking and saying, mm, not so sure. What about this? Or what about that? Or what if? That's fine. You know, it's important to, to listen to them, but but listen, but don't be don't be too swayed by them. Because it's, you know, you don't need too many of those little voices in your ear to sway you off course. And before you know it, you know, you're back into messing around in the edges rather than the, the original intent and transformation um, that you were you aspired to. The, the, other, the other piece that I've, I've really learned is looking at, you know, the amount of hours that colleagues are working uh, right now. You only have, and you know this better than anyone, John, given your background, you only have a limited amount of energy. And actually, at the point when you're starting to feel tired, but you know you've still got more work to do that day or that weekend, that is the very point that you should turn off your laptop, turn off your phone, and go and do whatever gives you energy, whether that's going for a run or reading a book or being with your family and friends, whatever it is, do that. You don't need to do it for too long, but do it at that point in time, because otherwise you just quickly get to a place where you're too tired. You haven't got the energy for the, you know, the decision, the meeting, the conversation that you, you need to have. And the chances are, if you go into some of these conversations sort of half-cocked or 50, 60% of, of the energy, you're not going to get the outcomes you, you really want. So there's been numerous times. I mean, in fact, someone's uh, asked me this a little while back, you know, what did you do the night that you uh, found out about the approval? And it was, it was pretty late on. Um, but actually what I did, I, we'd got all of our background. I knew all of our, our you know, uh, talking points and what I was going to say to the press the next day. I actually went out for a run because what I needed to do was to be able to totally switch off for just an hour or so and get really clear in my mind what we were going to do tomorrow morning, which was going to start incredibly early and go till probably midnight and, you know, in the, in the evening. 
it would have been really easy to sit down and say, right, I need to go back over that. I need to look at that message. I'd learned through what I'd been through over the last 12 months. I was going to get more out of myself from going for a run and, and you know, renewing my energy than cramming another hour in front of the, uh, the notes and the laptop again. That's brilliant advice. So I'm curious to know from your vantage point what you think the world will look like two, three years from now and what are the implications for leaders? What are the, what are the leadership characteristics that will be crucial in the future from your perspective? Oh, wow, Scott, I, I think that, I mean, that that's a question I think many people will be debating for, uh, for, <laughs> uh, for weeks and months to, uh, to come. I think we're all trying to predict what the, what the future is. Um, uh, maybe, maybe I'll look at this and, and frame this around health, because I guess that's where I've got more of an understanding and a, and a view in terms of what this will mean, because there are so many implications of, of the, the, the pandemic for, uh, for all every aspect of our lives. So if I frame it in, in health, I think what we've really seen uh, over the last 12 months is this close association of health, healthcare, and the economy. And what happens when health is challenged? You know, the economy in many countries uh, has been brought to its knees by a virus that many people never, ever imagined uh, would, come to, uh, would, would come to bear. But unfortunately, you know, many of us think about health uh, as a sort of a secondary topic often at times. When you look at the costs associated with, with health, uh, it's sometimes seen uh, or perceived as a drain rather than a, an asset. And so for me, I think now is absolutely the right point in time for everyone, for companies, for businesses, for individuals, for governments, for healthcare systems to absolutely reframe the way we look at health and see the health of individuals and the health of our nation as an asset. Because when you get really clear that it's an asset, I think you will treat it differently. You will invest it in a different way. You'll make different strategic decisions. You will move to more of a, I think, long-term outcomes uh, lens rather than some of the sort of more microscopic short-term focus that we often uh, see, often associated with political cycles. I think we will also see uh, a shift towards uh, a focus on prevention uh, and prevention of, of poor health. So you know, 60% of the funding in the UK uh, of healthcare funding um, is on curing um, disease or, or essentially rehab of, of disease just 5% is on prevention. So if you put that in, in, in big numbers, that's, that's basically 97 billion pounds versus 8 billion pounds. I mean, that is just mind blowing when you put it like that. We have got to shift and, and, and yeah. turn that on its, uh, on its head. I think the other piece we need to do along with that though, is to uh, recognize that broader link back to the health of our economy and in terms of the health of our nation and start to measure it accordingly. So we have very clear economic metrics, you know, uh, I guess the most common being, uh, being GDP. Why not have a very clear national health metric that we are mm. all striving to, that we're in uh, basically investing towards, we're making strategic decisions uh, towards and that is how we will measure our our success. I really believe in the future we'll, we'll see some shifts uh, towards uh, towards that. Mm. And I think when you pull all of that together, if we get this right, 
I'm really hopeful that some of the health inequalities that we've seen, not just in the UK, but across the globe, will be overcome because we really have shown if you bring science and data technology uh, and technology together in the way that we have done over the last 12 months, you really can make the impossible possible. Uh, and it's time to do that again now with, with you know, many other diseases and, uh, and conditions, but to get ahead of that and, and prevent them as best we can. Well, Ben, I live in a household with a few health challenges, specifically some immunocompromised uh, individuals. So when I told my 10-year-old daughter I was doing this interview, she said, will you please tell him I said thank you? So from my daughter to you and from me, thank you for the work you're doing and for, for being on our show today. It was incredibly insightful. Yeah, Ben, I think, well, the whole nation, the whole world owes individuals like yourself and your teams and the whole health system a huge debt of gratitude for the incredible effort that you have put in. Um, you know, I know personally how much, you know, you, you've sacrificed personally in order to make this work. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it is inspiring to to see what is possible when adversity drives the uh, drives the need, but uh, yeah, thank you. No, thank you, John. Thank you, Scott. You know, as I said many times, it, 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 you know, I just wish people could see behind the scenes how many thousands and thousands of colleagues uh, have you know given up their their personal time, their holidays, their weekends to to make this a, a reality. Um, and it's something we stand ready to do for, for other diseases now in the in, in the future. Yeah. Well, friends, we hope you've enjoyed this time with Ben Osborne as much as we have. And until next time, remember, the world is evolving. Are you? <laughs>